Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and we've just finished a fantastic interview with Campbell Mercer, an Australian farmer from Victoria State who has 40 hectares of mixed farm, with his main crop being olive trees. He's actually a winner of an olive award. You'll hear more about it during the show. And on his farm, he's planted shelter belts, windbreaks, different forestry systems, and has, has planted his olive trees on a unique plantation pattern called the Key Line Pattern. So we'll go into all of these subjects. Again, we are talking to a farmer that has 20 years of experience with different tree systems. He's already started harvesting his first timber crops. He's been he's won awards for his olive oil and it was absolutely fascinating. So I really hope you enjoy. Hello, Campbell, and welcome on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Ah, that's awesome. I wanted to start off by firstly congratulating you on your gold medal in the 2020 Australian International Olive Awards competition, which uh, I found out on your website. And I thought that was quite incredible. Thank you. Yeah, no, that was uh, really, really pleasing. We're a relatively small farm and um, organically certified. And uh, yeah, a lot of contestants, international competition. And uh, to, get it, to, go, to get a gold medal was really good. And uh, we're also nominated as the best extra virgin olive oil in Victoria. Um, so there's about 73 entries from Victoria as well. So, yeah, to be like wow. the best in that group um, is, is really pleasing. Yeah. Well, that's really, really amazing to see. And um, I guess that's going to open up lots of questions about, you know, how is that happening? How did how did you make that, you know, how did you get that gold medal? Um, and I'm sure we're going to get into it in the conversation little by little. Um, but before that, maybe we could have a bit of, a, of, a, of an introduction as to, you know, what's your story and how do you got started with olive farming? Right. Actually, uh, yeah, I guess I grew up on a farm, um, a mixed farm. And uh, from that... Um, yeah, went to university, went into corporate life, did a whole lot of stuff there um, over a number of years. But I guess once we had children, uh, I sat down with my wife and said, okay, what do we want to do long term? And said, okay, I said, I'd be really keen to get back to the land. And uh, she was really keen as well. So that's what we decided to do. So we moved back to the land, bought this place. Um, and at the time, it was a very run-down sheep farm and, um, you know, really been, you know, set stocked, um, very poor pasture. In fact, it mainly had cape weed. We're looking at some early photos um, years ago, uh, from a few years ago, and, yeah, almost like 100% cape weed. And so, yeah, a huge challenge to start with. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess I had a vision and passion and energy and thought, yep, th this will work for us. So um, that that's sort of my background. We started um, about 20 years ago and, um, 
yeah, maybe if I just tell you a little bit about the farm, um, that'll give a bit of context for, um, yeah, maybe our, our further conversation. So, um, yeah, we're really, we're, we're a small farm, um, certified organic. We're located at an altitude of about 500 metres and um, we're about 100 uh, kilometres from Melbourne. Um, so that's in the southern part of Australia. We pretty much have a Mediterranean climate, so um, coolish winters and um, hot, dry summers. Um, so classified as temperate in terms of climate. Um, so in winter, we do get down at, to zero at night, and maybe six or eight degrees during the day, um, and occasionally get snow. Um, but most of the rain occurs in the winter, and then um, in the summers, they tend to be relatively dry and hot. Um, so typically high 30s, um, we usually get a bout of days in the, in the 40s, um, but it, that depends um, on the season. Um, because we're typically impacted by both La Nina and El Nino, um, so we're the reverse of South America. Um, so when there's an El Nino, they get flooding, we get droughts. This year we're a La Nina, so we're getting flooding. So Brisbane up the north of Australia, um, they've had a metre of rain in the last three days. Um, yeah, I saw that on the news. Huh? It looked yeah, pretty bad. Yeah. So, um, you know, so, so lots of rain in a La Nina season. <laughs> Having said that, because we're down south, we're not as affected. Um, and it hasn't rained here for a month, like zero. And um, so, yeah, so we get quite a lot of variability. Um, and historically, the rainfall here has been around 700 mil a year, um, but, but it's fallen um, with, with climate change. And we're probably closer to an average of around 600 with quite significant variations. Um, in the last few years, we've had as low as 400 and, and as much as 850. So yeah, big, big variation um, year to year. The, um, just to give a bit of background on the soil, because that has a huge impact in terms of what you can grow and how you can grow it. Um, it's really old soil. Like a lot of Australia, um, we're on very old soil. It's about 400 million years old, and that doesn't mean much to many people. But to put it in perspective, when this soil was laid down, there was only one continent. That was Gondwana land. So it was one supercontinent. That's when the soil was laid down for this place. So it is really, really old. Um, so as a result, like a lot of Australian soils, it's relatively infertile and has relatively higher concentration of heavy metals, things like iron, aluminium, and they tend to lock up your nutrients in the soil. So, you know, in terms of how, what you do and um, your biological treatment and how, how do you unlock some of that, then, yeah, that's really, really important um, in this context. And our topsoil was really, really thin. Like, yeah, the the previous owner really just had, had flogged it out. So the topsoil was maybe um, 25 mil thick. Um, and then you went pretty quickly into like a hard clay layer um, with quite a lot of stone through it. And luckily the stone, uh, gives it pretty good infiltration. So that's that's the one upside, um, but relatively infertile. And we're generally north-facing um, slopes. And so because we're in the Southern Hemisphere, that means we're warmer and drier, typically. 
Um, so yeah, that's that's a bit of context in terms of you know about the farm itself, the sort of temperature we have, sort of soil we have, um, and um, yeah, and, and you know potentially just a little bit about the farm itself. Sorry, I just should probably put that in. Is that um, you know we've developed quite a um, diverse set of activities across the farm. So so we've got agroforestry. Um, which is, to my sense, classic agroforestry, close spacing, four by three metre spacing, um, typically Australian natives, um, but for the most part, with one or two exceptions, not Indigenous. Um, and, and I'll come back to that um, in a moment. <clears throat> we also have wide space tree crops, which is you know, probably what people think is the traditional silvopasture. So that's on a 15 by 15 metre spacing. Um, so yeah, plenty of grazing opportunity and alley cropping. Um, then we have olives. So we have about two and a half thousand trees, of olives, um, which are on an eight by five um, metre spacing, non-irrigated. Um, so we're dry range. Uh, we also have a riparian zone, um, which is about 20% of the total land area. And we're really committed to regenerating that to um, the original vegetation, which is grassy woodland. And, and the reason for that is that in, in the state of Victoria is that we've got about less than 1% of that natural grassland left um, from pre-European settlement. So, um, and, and again, we can talk about um, some of the things we're doing there. Um, we also have some open grazing land. Um, that's largely exotic imported um, grass species um, and extensive shelter belts. So that, that sort of gives a bit of a summary about the place. Yeah, it gives us a bit too much to talk about as well. This is the problem, as we had talked, as we had said before, Campbell, it's there's too much okay. stuff to discuss, too many interesting projects going on, um, which makes the interview uh, more, more challenging. You know, there's... One or two details I wanted to confirm with you. I was curious about the actual size of the farm. You said it was relatively small, but how many hectares do you have? Oh, so it's um, just a little under 40 hectares. And uh, when did you start farming over there? When did you actually like buy the land and or, or take over the land? Yeah, so we started out in 2002. So it's almost exactly 20 years ago. You know, we, I saw on your website, and as you explained earlier on, you're, you're organic. And I was curious why you had decided to go organic. Was, what was the motivation for that? Yeah, so um, I, I guess it was all driven by a personal belief that, um, it, yeah, 20 years ago, that was quite unusual, less unusual now. But um, I guess I was personally committed to... Um, you know, agriculture without the use of, um, you know, industrial fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides. And so it was really taken from a philosophical approach. Um, and subsequently, I discovered that, um, yeah, there's, there's certainly a premium associated with organic produce. And, you know, one of the advantages, certainly in terms of selling my um, olives and olive oil and olive products, is that organic certification, is that um, that gives me some opportunities that um, that enables me to compete 
in the marketplace and still make a living. I guess that's also yeah, it's similar to our case in, in Mazi Farm, I guess. It came from a philosophical place at the beginning, wanting to, to not put chemicals on our, on our land, as challenging as that can be at times. Yeah. Yeah, it's not as if we don't have weeds and it's not as if we don't have um, pests and all the rest of it. It's, um, it's just saying, okay, well, you know, there's... I, I actually think industrial farming as a general rule shows a lack of imagination is that, you know, for every problem that you have, if you see it as a problem, is that there's a, there's an opportunity there. And, um, and to a large extent, you're just challenged to find what that opportunity is. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it's just a smarter way. You've just got to be smarter in terms of the way in which you approach things um, and be happy with complexity. That, that's the other issue, is that um, you've got to recognise that these are complex systems and that, you know, if, if you apply a simple solution, you end up with a whole lot of unintended consequences because we don't understand the systems. Mm. Is that why you have planted such a, or integrated such a, a diverse set of systems on your farm? Yeah, part of this was driven like our, um, you know, our agroforestry is a, uh, a diverse species agroforestry. So we have you know, quite probably about a dozen different um, species that we've uh, planted across there. Uh, some of that was just in terms of how did we want to go about the, um, putting the agroforestry in. So we planted um, an indigenous species um, every, about every second tree, which was a, a black wattle, which is uh, Acacia mernsii. And it grows very, very quickly. Um, it, and as a result, it forces the other trees to grow straight up to get to the light. And so it saves a lot of pruning by, by doing that. So you get these trees. And um, because, because they're indigenous species, they have a lot of indigenous pests. And typically, they don't last, um, live much longer than about um, somewhere between 15 and 25 years. And so um, on one of our drier plots, um, you know, they basically all died. They got the um, lictospora into them and um, they, they've all died, which is great. It's then left the other species to continue to grow. Um, and we're getting some great um, logs coming from those. In, in the wetter portion where um, they, they were quite happy to, to keep growing to some extent, is that I had to thin them out to uh, enable uh, their enough water for the, um, you know, our, our timber species. But what I'd done, which most people don't do with uh, nursemaid crops, is I'd actually prune them. And so when we actually cut them out, it actually, because they're very fast growing, um, it actually gave me quite a number of saw logs. And um, so we ended up with about uh, 500 or 600 saw logs out of that, which we then milled. And um, I've, I've subsequently been able to, to sell. And um, I've sold um, a lot recently to, there's a, a local group who uh, have, have built a, a hut, it's called the 21st Century Hut. There's a video on um, YouTube. Um, and I supplied all the um, timber for that, for the uh, flooring and um, for the doors. And um, I personally think it looks magnificent. 
And even historically, the, the black wattle tends to have been overlooked as a species. Um, it was used a lot for tanning because it has a high tonic, ta um, tannin content in the, um, in the bark. Uh, and so traditionally used for tanning, but it was never really used as a timber tree. And it's, it's a beautiful tree. It, um, initially, when you cut it, it looks, you know, it's like a, a milky white. Um, but then over the following three days, as it oxidizes, it turns into a red and it has this wonderful reddish sheen to it. It is magnificent. And uh, it's quite quite a hard timber, dense timber. But yeah, yeah, that's definitely a two birds with with one stone situation there because you're you're facilitating or making your management easier, whilst at the same time getting a harvest out of it. Is it the first harvest from your forestry plots? Yeah, correct, correct. So that was our first thinning, <clears throat> probably a little later than it should have been, but. Part of the reason for that is that, ironically, 2002 was the start of the millennium drought. And so we had um, record low rainfall um, for eight successive years. And as a result of that, everything grew really slowly. I'd have to say, even my olives. Um, the olives survived, but um, they didn't really grow and they certainly didn't produce. And um, similarly with the forestry is that it didn't grow very quickly. And so, um, so yeah, I, I guess I, uh, when did we uh, thin it? We thinned it about five years ago, I guess. And um, is uh, when we took the, uh, the, all the, all the black bottle out. And um, yeah, and, and, you know, we sort of like used a um, swing over saw, and um, you know, cut that into um, pieces, which uh, we could then use. And quite a lot of it we cut up, because each each log you look at and say, what's the best or most timber I can get out of this? And and so each log, you know, you get different dimension species, uh, different dimension um, blocks of timber. But you need to be fairly consistent in terms of, otherwise you end up with a complete mismatch and it's unsaleable. So you've got to think, okay, what's the end use going to be? And we anticipated that it could be a floral. So we actually cut a lot at, at flooring width. Okay. And so this is, you sold it to a local group. It was kind it's kind of like, you didn't sell it to a cooperative that then sold it to that group. You you went to see that, that company or that group. I can't remember exactly what it was directly. Correct. You went to see them and to, Okay. Yep. So it was just locally sold in a very short circuit. Very, very, yeah. And and part part of that, um, you know, around the whole idea of the hut that they built was all about sourcing products as close as possible to you know using uh, local indigenous species and and sourcing them as close as possible to the hut itself. And, and the hut's about. Um, five kilometers from my place. Wow, that's that's ideal. That's a quite a good um, uh, sales opportunity yeah. for you, because I, I would expect small quantities like this could be sometimes hard to sell. Am I am I mistaken? No, that's probably right. There's slowly becoming more opportunities, um, but in many cases, it is small private sales where. 
people see the end product and say, yeah, I'd really love a room of that or, you know, I'd love a bench made out of that or a table or something like that. And by knowing some of the local artisans who um, are involved in that process, then, you know, they can give me a call and say, look, you know, we've got this opportunity. Are you interested in um, selling some of your timber? So, uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a matter of you know local networks, and um, ra rather than trying to sell it into a much broader market, where it becomes yeah very difficult. Yeah, because the I mean the forestry companies and they're they're reaching economies of scale that yeah I I can only imagine I don't know what the case is like in Australia, but the, the price of timber is just really low as compared to to your costs on, on a smaller scale. Yeah, absolutely. You can never make that work. Never. So, um, and, and there's a whole lot of um, forests put in here, which were actually put in, um, um, they grew blue gums. Um, and the whole purpose of growing them was for wood chips, you know, for, to make paper. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's sort of bizarre because it's wood chips is about the lowest value product you can get out of timber. And blue gums, which is uh, eucalyptus globulus, is a tremendous timber tree. Like, um, yeah, it's, it can be used for a whole lot of structural purposes. Um, it's very clear. It's a clean growing timber. And they just planted them really densely and just chopped them down for wood chips. Just like a travesty in some respects. Mm, that's interesting. It's the same case here in Portugal. They've planted lots of uh, eucalyptus globulus. I'm, I'm actually in Portugal right now. That's what I'm saying here. Okay. Uh, and they, they, um, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, they, I can't remember exactly what the cycle is. It may be after 10 years, but, you know, they harvest them, they copies them and yep. uh, they do that after a few rounds and actually, I went to visit a, um, um, a farm, uh, a, a small farm just north of Lisbon once, and they, they took over land that had been through a few of these cycles, and they had a pH of four. And they had, so that the soil was completely depleted of all of its cations, and it was just, it was very, very challenging condition. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. Because it also, so, you know, it, it's interesting as well to see how that affected um, the, the the soil capital there. Yep. Um as a side note, <laughs> but um, I'm, I wanted to zoom out just a tiny bit and um, looking at remaining in, in, in inside the, the topic of, of the farm forestry as, uh, or agroforestry, uh, as, you, as you call it. And I'm curious as to what were your main objectives with it? Why did you, you know, you, you have 40 hectares of land and um, it's re relatively small um, um, piece uh, size of land. Why did you decide to diversify with the forestry? What were your main objectives there? So part of it was around to create some biodiversity. Um, is that yeah? So a lot of the farms around here, um, a lot of them were were cleared. Um, they may have left one or two trees um, for stock, um, bit of shelter for the stock. You know, a bit of shade on a hot day maybe, but you know only a small amount, number of the flock or herd could actually ever get underneath a tree. And then, of course, you get a whole lot of compaction um, because the stock always camp underneath the tree and, and eventually the tree dies. And you can see lots of paddocks around here where, you know, these magnificent old trees and they're all dead. 
So you just get these skeletons just standing out in the paddock. Um, so I, I was looking to um, you know, regenerate the land um, and I saw agroforestry as a great way to do that. And I didn't really see myself as giving up a huge amount in that, okay, for the first few years, you don't get a whole lot of um, grass in the, in the understory. But once you've done that first thinning, you're getting a reasonable amount of grass um, and a great deal of protection for stock. So I can still run my sheep underneath um, you know, the agroforestry plots um, after the first thinning, actually even ran them before the first thinning, but um, you know, there's a reasonable amount of grass there after the first thinning and you know, a lot of shelter. So you know, whenever the weather turns bad, the sheep always move into the agroforestry um, blocks. And so you know, it, there's, there's a whole lot of benefits associated with having trees on farms. And um, I, I think we really um, miss out on some of those opportunities, even for people who are just running livestock. Um, but there's all these other opportunities that you have. And in terms of, yep, you can get some value from the timber that you're growing. Um, you also get a whole lot of biodiversity. So, you know, we have something like 76 bird species here. Um, which we see on a, a pretty regular basis, which is up quite a lot on what we used to have, which is down in the 50s. And so, you know, we're, we're getting a lot of wildlife coming back as a result of, you know, this biodiverse plantation. And then I'm still getting a whole lot of value from it. So not only do I get the value from the timber, but, um, you know, the, the larger logs that are no good for timber, I um, can turn into firewood, which is pretty low value. I, I understand that. And then the next size down, I turn that, I've got a furnace and I turn that into biochar. And then the smallest pieces I then run through a chipper and, um, you know, through a, an eight inch um, chipper. And uh, it'll turn um, those into small wood chips. And I either use that as um, mulch or more recently, I've been using it to convert that into compost um, using um, the Johnson Sioux method. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but um, that is a great way. It takes a bit of time, but that is a great way to produce an outstanding compost. And then um, I use that as a compost extract um, to you know, enhance the biological life on, on my soils. So, you know, I, I see a lot of products coming out of that um, to enable me and, and you know, sort of like not on a commercial basis, I also have bees. Um, and, you know, if you have a diverse uh, agroforestry plot, then you end up with uh, trees flowering at different times of the year. And so, you know, you then get honey um, as another product that comes out of this uh, biodiverse uh, you know, essentially agroforestry plantation. That's very interesting. And I'm curious, have you have you planted these agroforestry plots in specific parts of the landscape based on kind of their ecological sensitivity or, or have you, um, sensibility, sorry, or have you been placing them, how, how did the design unfold? 
Yeah, so the design unfolded depending on um, pretty much on the uh, the slope and how much sun um, each block would get. And so essentially the way we laid it out is we put um, the olives on the gentle facing northern slopes. And that then left us other areas. So, okay, what are we going to do with these? Um, so we had a very, quite a steep um, slope that faces east. It's quite dry and, uh, you know, to some extent too, too steep to get a harvester, an olive harvester onto. So we grew, you know, some quite dry species um, in that area. So none of them are indigenous. Um, they're, they're all native to Australia, but they're not indigenous to this area. And, um, and then we had some south facing slopes, which um, because we're in the Southern Hemisphere are wetter. And so we grew a different set of species really focused on that. So, you know, to answer your question, yeah, absolutely. We looked at the slope um, and what sort of microclimate we were going to get in each of those areas and then determined which trees that we we're going to put into which area. Nice. Okay. So it was also making use of the more marginal areas of the land. Correct. The ones that were more challenging to, to cultivate olives on. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, again, really trying to maximize the value out, out of the landscape that you have. But it, again, it also generates a whole lot of generates more biodiversity. That's the other thing is that you end up with different species in different areas and um, <clears throat> that really works as well. It complements the ecological matrix of, of your land, of your 40 hectares by creating a diverse set of ecosystems, which creates a diverse set of products, a diverse set of, 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 of organisms that can live in it. It's, um, it's the, from, from my perspective and also from interviewing many people that do agroforestry, you can see that these situations, they often create a lot more complexity to manage. Um, but at the same time, they create also a lot more opportunity. Some people have even been using these types of plantations to create tourism, tourism opportunities, get bird watching crews uh, onto their land to, you know, there's so many different ways in which we can, we can kind of um, make that biodiversity have, have an economic sense for us in order to, to, do, to, to maintain it and to care for it and to, to actually be motivated to plant it. I don't know. What, I'm curious to know what your take on that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you 100%. At, but to me, it's not just uh, an economic outcome. It's also a great environment to live in, um, to have, you know, that biodiverse um, areas in, in a sense, the whole landscape becomes biodiverse then that you end up with a lot of different species. And it's just a really nice place to really um, go and wander around and spend time in. And, you know, how do you put value on that? Is that, you know, I, I think we lose sight of the human spirit. Like, you know, on our, our south-facing slopes, the trees just like really grown, really tall. Um, and sometimes when the sun's coming up and I'm over there working, it, it feels like you're in a cathedral. Like you just have these massive trees that go straight up. Um, you know, the sun coming in, it, it just, you know, you get that golden light. It really is. It's really uplifting to the soul. And yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying that there's not economic benefits associated with that, but I think we, we sometimes by bringing everything down to the dollar, we sometimes miss on some of the really, really important things. 
Yeah, I, I find that very inspiring. And, you know, on the podcast, we're often thinking about the economics and because it's something that it drives so many of our decisions um, nowadays, um, probably not just nowadays, um, probably back in the days as well. But, you know, we're often trying to find the economic answers for farmers through the, uh, in the podcast by interviewing people. And we, I have to admit, we can sometimes be ignoring or be be not putting enough value on 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 the much more you know emotional or quality of life things that agroforestry and trees and complex landscapes can can provide to us so i'm very happy that here you're being an advocate for that because it's necessary <laughs> reminding me as well <laughs> you know it's um I, I think it's really important for us to live in landscapes that um you know, we really enjoy and really feel connected to, um, you know, almost in a spiritual way. And, you know, we we, we slightly discount that at our peril. Um, you know, does everyone want, you know, and, and to some extent you've seen that in, in, in quite a few countries and, and in this one as well, where, you know, to get the GPS equipment to work and everything else, they've taken out every single thing you know, corner to corner so that, you know, the GPS controlled tractor can just go round and round and round. And, you know, it's, you know, it's industrial agriculture. It's, it's lost its soul. It's, um, and, you know, where, where does that place us in, in the future? So um, I, I don't discount that because, again, can you monetize that? Absolutely, you can monetize that. Is that, yep, you can get people, people, come here and they really, they love the environment. And so, yeah, could, could I make money by running tours and all the rest of it? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, people have rung up and wanted to run weddings here and those sorts of things. So, yes, you can monetize it because people feel good in this environment. But I think it's important to say you, you do it because it's the right thing to do. And okay, if you need to monetize it afterwards, then so be it. Um, you just become innovative about how you're going to monetize that. But to just do things on the basis that, well, this is going to be making an extra dollar, it's pretty soulless. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fully, fully agree. That's very interesting. So what's the next tree that you're going to harvest? So, yeah, the next tree, that's um, an interesting question. Um, I'll probably take out, um, I had put some lightwoods in, which is a, um, that's also an acacia. It's um, acacia implexa and they're all hickory wattle. They grow quite well, um, but I haven't been overly pleased with them. So I'll probably take some of those out and um, that, that, they'll, they'll make uh, a very nice furniture grade timber. And I'll probably take out some uh, sugar gums, sugar gums, eucalyptus, uh, cladocalyx, and um, very hard timber, very dense timber. Um, actually originally came from a very small part of Australia over in South Australia. And they're, um, but grow in much drier areas um, historically than, than here. And so they have grown amazingly well. And so um, I, I think probably 
um, in the next five years or so, some of those will definitely be, um, you know, commercial grade in terms of being able to take them out and um, use them for various uses. The the only downside of um, sugar gums um, is that it is a very heavy timber. So for furniture, you know, if you're making furniture out of it, you end up with whatever you're making is really heavy. Like if you make, if you make a table out of it, you know, you need like three people to lift it. So that's probably the only downside. Otherwise, um, yeah, I, yeah, to me, I quite like a heavy table. So, but yeah, sometimes people say, oh, you know, that's a bit of a downside. But you know, it's it's a it's a um, class one um, grade timber, so you can you know use it use it in the ground if you want to use it in the ground. Um, won't uh, you've got a fifty year life in the ground. Um, so you know, it has a huge number of uses, but you know, I guess I'll be focusing on what are the high value uses I can get out of it. And um, yeah, I, I think there's there's some some furniture um, possibilities um, definitely. So this would be to collaborate with local artisans again. This would be you producing the furniture yourself. No, no, I'll um, and again uh, depends on how we set it up. Um, depends on whether um, I take it down and mill it. Certainly, um, you know, I think. If you want a reasonable value for your timber, you've got to mill it. Um, if just selling selling logs, selling logs uh, on on a small scale, um, yeah, you'll never get that to work um, from a financial perspective. So so you do have to mill it, and um, you know it's I I have access to a swing blade saw, so that's typically what I use. Um, but for furniture grade timber, possibly a bandsaw would be better. Um, but you know, let's not have that debate now because there's huge forums where people argue about one sort of um, saw being better than another. Yeah, and it's it's a bit beyond my mind. I'm 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 not super familiar with the different ways of harvesting wood and actually even the forestry aspects. This is. Uh, not so specialized in it. I'm sure there's a lot of podcasts that are very specialized in this though. And there's some, there could be some, can maybe give a few recommendations afterwards. But, you know, for, for me, I'm, I'm seeing it more from a strategic point of view. When you're telling me, you know, I need to get these saws, you know, and I need to, that means that you, you need to have the infrastructure locally, either on your farm, which means you need to buy it, which may be a very high cost based on your small scale, or you need to have it regionally available so you can rent it or use it for, you know, take it off a mate or something in order Correct. to... So what's how are you managing that yourself? Do you have it on farm? Uh, no, I don't have it on farm. I borrow it from a mate um, who does a lot more of it than I do. Um, the yeah, and I, I think um, so. You, yeah, you don't have to own everything. Um, you know, from my perspective, I think um, from from a farming perspective, the things that you really need to own are those things that are time urgent, like you know, really weather dependent and, you know, when it needs to be done, it needs to be done now sort of thing. And, um, you know, in that situation, contractors are problematic because they're off doing a job somewhere else and, you know, you join the queue and whatever. So you end up with a, a suboptimal result. Um, and, and even, 
typically in, in an area, you can't really borrow from someone else because if it's optimal time for you, it's optimal time for them as well. So, so there's a small, a small amount of equipment that I think you have to have, you have to own. Um, but other than that, I think, um, yeah, particularly as the properties, as your property gets smaller, it becomes difficult to justify um, that sort of expenditure. Yeah, it makes sense. And so what about the, the drying as well? Because I have, I have read uh, Rowan Reed's book on, on how to manage a high quality uh, timber and it was very instructive for me as a very, having ba very basic knowledge on, on, on the subject. And, I, and it was fascinating to see how he, the technicalities of drying wood, right? How everything seems to be able to go wrong. Yes. With drying wood. So I'm curious, do you also have a, a kiln? Um, do you, how do you dry the wood uh, and, and maintain like, you know, the quality that you're, that you're, you're trying to get? Yeah. So um, I air dry it, so I don't kiln dry it. Um, so you probably end up with a bit more wastage. Um, I was really surprised with the black wattle, um, how little wastage we had is that, um, so you know, we um, we ended up with very small amounts of end checking, so that's cracking from the ends, and um, and dimensionally it, it was great in terms of you know uh, when it dried, it basically dried in all the dimensions. Um, <clears throat> obviously, um, you know it. it Uh, dries out faster radially than it does through the ends, but um, it dimensionally stayed very, very stable. Now I'll be interested to see what happens with some of my other trees. I did um, mill up a brown stringy bark at the time, and <clears throat> it, um, yeah, it it didn't perform particularly well. Um, and so uh, if If it looks like, um, and, and I'll do the same thing again, I'll just do a trial. And if that works uh, and I can get away with air drying, then I'll air dry. If I can't air dry, um, then there is a kiln, um, which is about, I don't know, 20 kilometers from me, um, which is available commercially. So you can actually book time in it. And um, I, I would do that. Yeah. But, um, you know, if I can air dry, I'll air dry. Yeah, so that it makes it means that it's quite it's quite easy for you um, to in, in terms of infrastructure with the with the with the mill close by that you can you can rent off. It's quite a um, it's quite a, um, an easy condition for you to be able to process on farm and to be able to sell directly to your local community around. I guess the other advantage is that I'm very close to a large population center, and so um, you know one of one of the issues typically associated with timber or any agricultural produce really, is that, you know, if you're a long way from a market, um, then, you know, that, then, then you lose value essentially because you've got to transport it and organize it and all the rest of it. So um, being close to a large population center um, is, is pretty helpful. Do you uh, also prune the, the, the trees? Do you have to quite intimately manage them to be able to get some nice logs Um, so yes, yeah, they, they, they do require pruning. Um, <clears throat> and I high pruned, um, three years ago to about six meters. Um, 
and I think I'll go a bit higher. I'll, I think um, I might even take it out to nine meters. Um, and and the, re the the magic number about six, of course, is that our standard uh, lumber dimension is six meters, fits into a 20 foot container. It's probably pretty standard across the globe. But um, I was, uh, went and visited uh, someone who is uh, very high pruning. Um, they were going, they were hoping to get to 12 meters, which would give them two six meter lengths. Um, but they they had quite a few trees which were at nine meters, which they were taking out, and they said, "Look, a, a three meter log is actually very very saleable." And so, because yeah, there, there's a lot of things that don't need something longer than th three meters. Um, so you know, what why why grow if if you can grow that extra three meters basically um, for a little bit of pruning effort, then why wouldn't you? I recently had a conversation with um, last week, actually, with an Italian farmer who has uh, also 30 hectares and he's uh, planted five hectares of uh, um, a specific um, forestry um, design, which is called polycyclic forestry. And it's, there's an organization in Italy that's developing this, doing a lot of research on it. And it's basically mixing multiple species together and harvesting them at specific times. It's a diverse diverse forestry projects um, with trees having multiple functions, right? Yep. Uh, in terms of um, shaping the, the more long-term species and, you know, self-pruning, helping them to, to, to have straight stems, to prune, to self-prune, etc. And what he was saying is, um, you know, he was very happy with the profitability of it, even though he was selling poplars to a company that was just coming in and they were just harvesting a poplar. It was one euro per centimeter of diameter per poplar. And the poplars were after 11, 12 euros, uh, 11, 12 um, uh, years, they were already coming in to harvest them. And, and he, wants, he wanted to grow um, his forestry and he wanted to take over more of his land instead of having cereals, having more and more forestry little by little. So I'm, I'm curious, of course, different contexts, different etc. But I'm, I'm curious about, he was very happy about the profitability. Right. And I'm curious, in contrast to the conversation we had a bit earlier on, what, what, how, what do you, how do you feel about the profitability of your forestry? Is it something that you would say, no, this is a profitable enterprise? Or is it something that you are doing for ecosystem services and for beauty and for, for even the different spiritual reasons that you, that you brought up with a an economic complement to try and cover some of the costs? Yeah, but it's, I think it's a bit of both. Um, you know, to some extent, I was really pleased to get um, value out of the first pruning. Um, so the first thinning, because um, for most people, that's um, you know almost just the cost. Whereas I was able to, um, you know, I've pretty much um, broke even um, so far, and I still have six cubic meters of timber to sell. So you know, for for your essentially for your first thinning to actually be able to make money out of that, I think that's that's a pretty good outcome. Um, now, could I have I made more out of the alternative use of that land? Probably. Um, but, you know, if I think about, okay, for example, running livestock, um, I could have done um, more intensively. But I think, I got a reasonable amount of um, livestock fodder out of those areas in any case. 
And so I'd, I'd have to weigh up the pros and cons, and then there's the protection that they provide, and therefore your animals grow faster. You know, th th it's multifaceted. And so, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with where it is at the moment. I think, um, I think there'll be more value in the future um, as I get some of these other um, timber species start coming online. I've got some um, iron bark, which is uh, eucalyptus tricarpa, and I reckon they'll be ready for harvesting in about 10 years. And another magnificent timber, um, very, very hard. You know, you've got to drill it to be able to, to nail it. It's, um, it's, uh, but, uh, you know, magnificent for, you know, outdoor decking, outdoor furniture, that sort of thing, because uh, again, it's, um, and a, a, a beautiful deep red, um, uh, color. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's just like a natural for, for outdoor furniture or, you know, an outdoor, outdoor barbecue setting or whatever. And, so I, I think again there'll be a lot of value associated with that. Not just selling the the tree as stumpage, but okay, let's um, you know talk with some of the people who are going to produce the end products, find out from them what sort of sized pieces they're looking for, and essentially you know mill to order. And um, I, I think there'll be some great value coming out of that. Interesting. I like how you've also said that, you know, it's multifaceted and it integrates the other activities of the farm, right? It integrates the other also objectives, your personal objectives, the objectives of the farm. It's, it's a complement without being necessarily the, an, an end in itself. It's, it's, it's something that is part of your ecosystem that you've created. And I think that's a good way to put it. It, it is part of the, the ecosystem that we've created here. Um, and to some extent, you know, you can't just pull out one piece and say, well, this is the value of that because, you know, it does provide multiple benefits. Um, and, and so it is, it is more difficult to say, oh, well, you know, this is the benefit from that because we got this piece of timber from it. Yeah, but what about all the other benefits that you got from that? Because, you know, it provides habitat for eagles, which then, you know, takes on the rabbits, which means they don't, um, create as big a problem for your olive trees because they'll ring bark them. And so, you know, how do you put a value on that? I'm currently uh, doing um, uh, a master's in natural resource management. And within, it's basically an agroforestry master's at the University of Missouri. And this is what we're seeing right now. It's just, you know, how do you, even just creating a scientific study on agroforestry systems, it costs 10 times more than a study comparing for this type of fertilizer via this type of fertilizer on a crop. Right. Or for example, you know, it, it's 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 a completely an, an other type of of agricultural. It's just very complex. So they 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 have a lot of problems to try. They they, see, they encounter a lot of, of of issues with you know trying to to create data on it. It's, right. it's quite it's quite challenging. And, and it's just a parallel to what we're, we're describing here as well. It's how do you put a value on on all of these um, these different services um, that the trees provide. But I'm zooming in a bit more now to the technical stuff. You, you said you had two types of plantations. You had some of them that were on that were very close together. Did you say it was four by three? Yep. And one of them, which was um, eight by five? Or... Uh, eight by five was olives. And then I have 
um, what I call my tree crop area, which is uh, 15 by 15, so quite wide spacing. And, and that's for timber production? Long term, it'll be timber, but I've planted species there that it won't be in my lifetime. Again, I've planted them because they produce multiple benefits um, even now. So the sort of trees that are in there are um, oaks, chestnuts, um, hazels, um, just in defense among them, um, and, and some other exotics. So pretty much they're exotic species. Um, the advantage of that, of course, is that, you know, a lot of that is really good pig food. And so one of the opportunities I see is to run, you know, free range organic um, pigs. And, you know, while the trees are growing and, you know, oaks are not known to, to grow quickly. Um, so, yeah, as I said, we won't be milling them in, uh, in my lifetime, but I am managing them on the basis that they, they'll be able to be harvested as timber at some point in the future. Um, so, but I get all these other products in the meantime. Yeah, sorry, you're not managing them for especially nut production. You're managing them more for timber production with the complement of chestnuts or acorns, hazels, etc. Indeed, although I have to say it depends a little bit on the tree because the chestnut, the chestnuts as a general rule, um, yeah, really haven't lent themselves to timber, I have to say. Um, and so the oaks have, the oaks have, you know, if, if you prune oaks, yep, they'll keep going up. Um, and I've got some sequoias and Himalayan cedars and things in there as well. But, um, and they're definitely all being pruned for um, forestry, um, or timber production at some point. But, you know, again, even those uh, species produce um, great shade uh, and habitat while they're growing. And, the other advantage is by high pruning is that it's really easy to get equipment underneath. So, you know, it's easy to run tractors and harvesters and that sort of stuff um, because the branches are, you know, after a few years are well up. So, um, yeah, it uh, has, has multiple benefits associated with that. And I have to say at that sort of spacing, um, you can't tell um, any downgrade in the amount of grass production that you get is that um, I, I would say it's as much, possibly more, because, um, you know, you get all the mycorrhizal fungi and um, other things happening, symbiotic relationships. And um, yeah, so as a result, it's almost like it hasn't cost you anything in terms of production. And yet, you get all these other benefits. And it gives me the opportunity to um, you know, potentially run pigs in the future or whatever, and then I can raise uh, acorn or chestnut raised pigs. So, you know, I, I think um, that there's multiple opportunities there. Um, and, uh, you know, chestnuts, of course, you, you, you can sell outright. Wow, that's fantastic. You, you really make me want to visit your farm because I'm inviting myself here, if you'll notice, because um, it's, <laughs> I regularly do that with guests. <laughs> um, I, I get too excited and I just tell people I want to come and visit them. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, I'd be happy to. Because it looks, it looks so diverse. It seems like there's so much to learn from that. 
you know, especially the, this grass, I mean, when we're looking at the silver pastoral, more, you know, tending towards more silver pastoral system as opposed to a more forestry system, as we've discussed before, the interaction between the trees and the grass is, is absolutely fascinating. I'm working in a context now where there's a, so in Portugal, in the Montado, which is these very old, large uh, holm and cork oak trees. And um, they, the, the grass underneath right. the oaks is much like twice the size of the grass in the open. Um, and, you know, the, trying to understand the reasons for that is interesting. And there can be multiple. And, and we're talking a lot about this with Francisco, who's also a, a guest from the podcast from before, I think, episode 26. And, yeah, it's, it's you know, there is a real interaction with these native grasses there um, and, and, the, and the oak trees. And grass grows better. After a grazing, the grass responds faster. Um, even when he's putting, when there's a lot of, um, of uh, blackberries underneath the oaks and he puts the goats, there is like twice, right. f- uh, the recovery is twice as fast underneath the oak trees. Even though we could say competition, light, uh, water, they have to share water between each other, etc., etc. Um, you know, what you see is you see a darker green grass, larger stems, you see uh, taller grass and you see faster response after grazing. It's in a right. time of drought. That's quite yep. fascinating. And the trees are, yep. some of them are 200 years old, 150 years old, most of them. So it's quite, quite, uh, quite inspiring to see. And there's not many of them. There's not too, you know, there's only about maybe of these large tree, maybe 20 per hectare, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah. And of course, some of the species, and I've, I've noticed that particularly around, um, you know, some of the acacias, because they pump nitrogen into the soil. Um, because they're leguminous and um, yeah the the grass just yeah if if there's enough moisture there the grass will grow really really well grows much faster Um, uh, the sheep will preferentially eat it and yeah so again you've got to say well you know that's basically free nitrogen that you're getting that's being incorporated into the soil and so um, yeah there is a lot of a lot of benefits associated with that. And interestingly, you know, to your point, is that you know, the grass will, will like die off um, in, in, or dry off um, other parts first and last underneath the trees. And, you know, I've, I've been thinking about that and, you know, is it because they got better? Because you'd think that they'd be competing for the water and everything's drying off. So you sort of think, well, how come in an area where you would think there'd be a lot more competition um, in terms of for water um, that it's doing so much better? And, um, you know, I, I, th- I think there's a few things going on, but I've noticed, um, you know, that the grass dries off much less in the shade of the trees. So certainly when you get that harsh winter, uh, summer sun, I actually think there's a drying effect. So it's essentially creating a microclimate. And I, I personally think that's very, very significant in terms of the impact It slows the wind down. So you don't get the same drying effect. So, you know, I think some of that has got to do with it as well. Yeah. And there could be a multiple multitude of other explanations in terms of hydraulic lift um, improved organic matter um, and you know soil moisture absorption. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's nearly too crazy to think about. It uh, 
hurts the brain. <laughs> but it's amazing to observe because the, we just also need to, we, we can observe the results and we can take, you know, management decisions based on the results without understanding all the mechanisms behind it. We see greener grass, taller grass, and we see longer periods of time grass. It's, 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 this is the observation we need to make decisions, not necessarily understanding all of the tiny little details underneath it as intellectually uh, interesting as that may be. Yeah, and I think sometimes sometimes I think that's important as as a practitioner is that you you observe something, you can try and guess at what is going on, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. What what, what matters is the outcome. And so via observation, you say, well, this is the set of circumstances, this is what happens, and therefore we need more of that. I mean, I, I would like to, to talk a lot, we could talk a lot more about this kind of silver pastoral system, but I wanted to shift gear a bit because I really wanted to talk to you about two more topics. And one of them is the key line pattern that you used in your olive orchard. And the reason is that, you know, when we're looking at agroforestry and planting trees, one of the big topics is, you know, how do you orient trees you know, and how do you, what direction and how do you organize the tree lines, whether it be forestry, whether it be an orchard, whether it be a civil pastoral system, this is a key topic. And actually finding somebody that has done that and had 20 years of feedback on, you know, a key line pattern, or maybe it's less, I'm not too sure when you planted the orchard exactly, but that's quite unique and special. So I'm sure you have quite a bit of feedback to provide on that. And, you know, to kick it off, maybe you could kind of explain to us how you came about planting a key line uh, pattern you know where did you get the idea from how did what's the story behind the key line design yeah okay so um i at uh, right back at the design stage i worked closely with a guy by the name of darren doherty mm -hmm. um who runs in now runs the regrarians platform but this was way way before then and um yeah, Darren would have to be one of the global authorities um, on key line design. And, um, you know, he's a bit of a master of water in the landscape. And, uh, you know, essentially, um, we worked on coming up with a design that would work uh, on based on key line principles. And, you know, basically, um, in terms of the practical implementation of that is that you end up with your rows of trees just off contour. Um, yeah. So, um, and as a result, not only is that the olive grove, but all the forestry um, was done on that basis and, and the silvo pasture, well, the agroforestry and the silvo pasture is done exactly the same way mm -hmm. um, and, and including the home orchard. So, um, and it works, um, it works well. Now, I've seen some research that talks about um, olive trees in terms of, um, you know, running the rows north-south versus east-west. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you run them north-south, then, you know, you get slightly higher production than if you run them east-west. And yet ours, because of the, the landscape um, and the key line system, essentially ours run east-west. But you know, I think you've got to be, there's research and there's research. You really need to be careful about what people have actually studied um, and get into the nitty gritty to understand what the conclusions might mean. Yeah. Because, you know, most of the research that's been done in this area has been on um, 
high density um, irrigated um, trees. So, you know, very close spacing of rows. Um, so a lot more shading. And as a result, you know, if, for example, we'd gone to a five by five meter grid, then you wouldn't know whether it was north, south or east, west, because it would look the same regardless. So because our rows are eight metres apart, so it's an eight by five, in actual fact, um, we've overcompensated potentially for the fact that, um, you know, the rows run east, west, and therefore will not shade um, the subsequent row. And, you know, because of the contours of the landscape, I have some trees which run fairly close to north, south, and those that run almost pure east-west and uh, looked at the production over a period of time and I can't see a discernible difference based on that. No, I just wanted to say to listeners because it can be quite confusing when we're talking about key line pattern and etc. I mean Campbell and I are familiar with it uh, from the Regrarians platform which is by the way a fantastic resource for anything regenerative agriculture. I highly advise people joining and, and checking out what's happening there. Um, but also go on Google and type in key line pattern to get a bit of an understanding visually of what it is, because then you'll be able to visualize more the, 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 the kind of pattern in which the olive trees of Campbell are planted. So it's definitely something very visual and you'll understand it much more by just checking out uh, one or two Google photos there. So that's just a little, a little, a little notice on the side. Sorry for interrupting you, Campbell. <laughs> no, no, not, not at all. Probably the only other thing I should talk about while we're talking about key line design and the, the, the way in which we set the property up is that, um, and this is something that Darren would not do now because I've had subsequent conversations with him, um, is that we did actually deep rip and mound um, when we planted the olive trees and um, you know, all, all the agroforestry blocks. And it's interesting, and I subsequently put in a, um, a, a plot with, without um, deep ripping and mounding um, of um, eucalypts. So I, I have a bit of a comparison. And, um, you know, my experience with the deep ripping is that, yes, it does help the trees establish early and therefore they tend to grow faster at the start. Um, I reckon that's up to about five years. At 10 years, very little difference. Now, now everyone deep rips, but, um, you know, and if you have a, a hard pan or a, a hard layer somewhere in there, you know, that may be justified. But I'd hate to think that people thought, uh, well, I'm not going to plant trees because I, you know, I can't deep rip it for X, Y, Z reasons, because I, I think that given time, um, and this is certainly with eucalypts at least, um, they do tend to catch up. Um, but yeah, you get much faster establishment. Um, I, I have no doubt about that. Um, the other interesting question is around mounding, um, or um, I think they call them swales in permaculture. Um, is that, and, and again, Darren says that if he was doing this design now, he, he wouldn't recommend it. Um, from my point of view, I think the jury's still out, um, particularly where you've got a key line design. And, and the reason I say that is that 
we're getting much more intense rainfall. Um, so even if we end up with the same amount of rain, is that when we get rain, it is much more intense. So we had a thunderstorm recently, about a, a bit over a month ago, because it hasn't rained in the last month. And uh, we got 50 millimetres um, in 50 minutes. And most of my soil, I have to say, most of my soil um, has an infiltration rate greater than that. So most of it will have soaked in. But I have some areas where the infiltration rate is lower than that. Um, and then you end up with runoff. And the advantage of, um, you know, having uh, uh, the mounds there is that it only runs to the next row, essentially. And then it just slowly travels along the row. And if you slow it down, it'll soak in. So, you know, in that 50 millimetre event, um, you know, the only runoff I had was from some from hard standing areas. Um, off the tree crops, off the uh, olives, not a drop. Interesting. Very interesting. How, how big are the mounds? So um, they, they're not... They're not large they probably um oh versus the adjacent area now of course they've settled over over 20 years um they're probably 100 mil 150 mil high so so not particularly high um but it's enough it's just enough yeah i, I wouldn't hardly consider that a mound because when you see the mounds that they're planting in in europe for example in southern europe they're, they're, I mean, when just at planting, so young trees, they're nearly 40, 50 centimeter high or more sometimes. Like they really make a mount. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and, and I struggle to understand the reason for that. And I'm still, I'm investigating um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try work it out. But um, is it for herbicide application? It's just easier to just spray on the sides to keep it clean. Is it, you know, we're talking about super intensive conventional here, so. Um, not the traditional right. plantation yep. orchards. So, but I, so I was trying to understand the reason for the mounding. But yeah, so that mound is like it's it's a minimal disturbance and it's also a minimal impact on you know applying mulch on the tree line if that is a, a you know a technique. So it's it's interesting for me when I think about key line and, and as as a, as a as a tree farmer, it's having changes in the in 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 straight instead of having a straight line having like a zigzag or, or curves just seems to be challenging in terms of you know machinery driving the tractor any you know spraying as well how do you feel about is it you know do you feel like it's worth it in terms of the water management improvement in your context is it something that you would if you were to do it again would you would you apply a once more a key line kind of pattern or would you go with straight lines i'm i'm very curious yeah so um the key line i, I would do key line again um i don't find it a big problem with um the tractor because you end up with parallel rows it's not as if the rows are not parallel and i think that's fairly important um and yeah i i think the way um, Darren designed it is that you know that you don't have the rows wandering all over the place uh, doing their own thing is that the rows are parallel um, yes they do contour around and but you know when you're spraying or mulching or whatever if you got 
parallel rows um, and you know you don't have tight turns, then it's it's not really an issue. I think um, probably um, a bigger issue is things like fences, because they, <laughs> by definition, almost um, they like to be strung in a straight line, and you know once you're putting um, lots of turns in them. But I I use um, a lot of temporary fencing, electric fencing, um, so we're, we're not straining up big distances of wire, and uh, in fact. You know, basically have very few permanent fences on the place um, because, yeah, that just gives me the flexibility to run the stock where I want to um, in the density um, that I want to. So, you know, I, I think having flex flexible fencing, but I, I would have thought that would be a much bigger issue than, um, you know, agricultural machinery. The fact that you got parallel rows uh, negates a lot of the downsides. That's interesting. And you've seen a noticeable improvement in water infiltration, especially in, I mean, the, the challenge is, is often in the first years when you're establishing the orchard, there's a lot of disturbance happening. Um, often you're starting with quite degraded soil, so less infiltration. What's your feedback on, what can you tell us on, on the impact on the water management, which is the original, let's say that's the purpose of the technique, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think definitely at the start, um, it was absolutely critical is that I, th I think I mentioned earlier is that, you know, that from the, almost from the day that we planted the trees, um, we were into the millennium drought and didn't rain significantly for about eight years. And, but again, when we did get rain, it was quite intense. You know, you'd end up with a big thunderstorm. And I actually think it was that key line um, design that actually ensured that many of the trees survived. I, I think many of them would not have survived without that arrangement because, yeah, because the soil, I have to say, the soil was definitely not optimal. You know, it was quite hard. It had been hard packed. It had been set stocked. Um, you know, really it wasn't in great condition. And so, now with with the infiltration that we have now in most places yeah it probably it probably doesn't matter darren is probably right it probably doesn't matter and you know um it, even having that small mound you could probably do away with in in some areas you'd, you'd probably still get some value from it but um but at the start you know, you haven't improved your soil, you haven't built the soil depth, you don't get that sort of infiltration from day one. Um, and so you either spend three years, probably, um, really improving your soil, getting infiltration, you know, use, using some, um, you know, intensive grazing, moving um, often, that sort of thing, really setting your soil up um, and probably spending three years in which to do that. And then planting, um, yep, that that might be a viable alternative. But of course, you've lost three years of growth. Um, if 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 you're ultimately looking for, you know, some sort of tree crop. And I, I think also it's important to remember that there's context and context. Uh, a context with a bit more rainfall and uh, a high, uh, a very poor infiltration soil, you may be reaping the benefits of a key line pattern, plus mounds, for example, for many more years as you are seeing with some of your more degraded areas where still 
you're seeing that the mounds are holding back the water and are, are, are you know, are infiltrating or allowing the water to infiltrate into the landscape slower and not run off. So that's also, that's also an interesting observation. What is the difference between, um, in your opinion, um, between the um, plant, using a mound and ripping? For example, you know, using a, let's say we use the, the ripper that is recommended by Darren, the, the, the key line plow. Um, and you would, you would rip in between the tree lines at uh, strategic points, uh, um, you know, at the start of the winter to allow for infiltration, maybe once a year or twice a year as compared to a mound. What's your, what's your take on this? I think it would come back to the context um, in terms of that there's a lot of things um, that are associated with ripping that, you know, there's potentially some downsides associated with that. Um, But for those soils that have a compacted hard pan, particularly if they've been um, cropped for a long period of time, then quite often you get both uh, a, a chemical and physical hard pan and yeah, you, you can grow daikon radish and, and other plants that will eventually break that up. But I, th- I think it is a bit of a speed thing is that um, you can, um, you know, go through with a, a key lime plow and get, you know, pretty much instant results. Um, but, you know, you've got to follow that up with, you know, various approaches you know multi-species cropping or whatever otherwise the soil will tend to tend to revert somewhat um so you know it means that you've got to keep doing it and ultimately i think you'd want to um have your soil set up so that you didn't have to keep doing it every 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 time you do it you know you're disturbing your mycorrhizal fungi and yeah and and i know with the key line it's it's not a huge amount of disturbance but but underneath like you know it's your, your tines are like 30 or 60 centimetres apart. So you are ripping through those mycorrhizal threads every time you're doing that. Um, and, you know, is, is that the best thing that you, you can be doing for your soil? There's a lot worse things you could be doing. But, um, again, I think there's other ways of achieving that. And, you know, right at the start, it may make sense. Um, to get back to your question, is it better than doing mounds? Um, Possibly the advantage of mounds is that, um, and, and you know, I'm not necessarily a huge advocate. I think definitely context, um, but I guess I have seen the benefits of them um, over a period of time. It seems like the mounds would be also a more sensitive, uh, soil sensitive uh, approach to allowing infiltration as compared to regularly ripping for 20 years. Yeah, and yeah, and to some extent, you know, part of the reason we like mounded is that, um, and 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 it wasn't a huge mound, um, but you know, again, we wanted to you know provide a nice bed for to plant the trees into, and to stop some of that um, uh, grass competition that you'd have when you, when you're looking for establishment, and so to some extent that's the advantage of doing the mound is that you end up with you know a nice area to get your tree into and get it established um before it has to start competing with um you know some of the allopathic um grasses 
Yeah, I was watching some videos on Regrarians of yours. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was on your Instagram. And it seemed that you are in quite a windy place. Like sometimes the olive trees are shaking a lot. I, I know as well on your, on your land that you've got a lot of windbreaks and or at least a few windbreaks. And I wanted to discuss a bit with you your experience with these windbreaks. Yeah. So in terms of um, wind, yes, uh, it is quite windy. And, you know, partly evidenced by the fact that we have five wind farms that are located probably within about five kilometres of us. So, yeah, because we're in an elevated area, um, the we, we do get um, a fair amount of wind and we've, and that seems to be increasing, both um, in terms of probably wind speed um, more, more than anything. And so, you know, for example, in the last uh, six months, um, our local power company has indicated that they believe they've had two one in a hundred year events in the last six months. Now, um, so that's versus, you know, versus history. Um, it clearly, they're not a one in a hundred year event. If you get two in six months yet, statistically, yes, you can get two two in six months, and they're both one in a hundred year events. But uh, it's unlikely. And so, you know, thing, things are changing. And so, yeah, our wind speed is increasing. Um, it was, I have to say it was quite windy when we were here at the start. And uh, we actually grew quite a lot of trees around the house and the sheds and those sorts of things um, just to reduce that wind speed. And um, that's been incredibly successful because uh, we've got an anerometer um, next to the house and we had wind gusts here um, getting close to 140 kilometres an hour um, when we first uh, got here. And uh, we haven't had anything over about 75 kilometres an hour um, more recently. And yet um, the local power authority would say that, you know, we've had worse winds um, than, than some sometime in the last 100 years. So um, certainly the number of trees and the way in which we've placed them has significantly decreased the wind speed um, on this property. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't have wind damage. Um, and, you know, we've lost quite a few trees. Um, in the agroforestry, um, to some extent, soon after we thinned, we had a bit of a windstorm come through. And, you know, you end up with tall spindly trees, which are really exposed to the wind. They are much more likely to snap. Um, the dynamics of a tree with all the lower branches cut off, um, it is much more likely to snap. And so we've lost quite a number, I'd know, maybe 20 or 30 um, brown stringy barks in particular, which seem to be quite prone to that. Um, but... Yeah, the, the windbreaks that we've put in place, um, again, are a multi-species um, windbreak. They um, typically have both larger trees and smaller trees right down to um, shrubs. Um, so, and, and you know, what we tried to get as, in, in as many places as possible, we'll get um, about three rows. Ideally, we'd have more. Um, but you know, certainly at, at three rows, you can get um, a really good 
mix of species in there and and really slow that that wind down and you know i think windbreaks um are a bit of a, a misconception is that you're not actually trying to stop the wind you need about 40 percent of the wind to go through um otherwise all you do is you create turbulence either around the sides or over the top um, and you actually increase the wind speed um, down downwind of the actual um, shelter belt you've put in. So, you know, without going into a huge amount of detail, there is a bit in shelter belt design to make sure that you have some species in there that let the wind through but slow it down. And, um, you know, species that we've found really, really helpful is um, casuarinas. Um, they have been absolutely fantastic for, um, you know, really, yeah, they let the wind through, um, but they slow it down. They've, you know, to some extent they've got leaves a bit like um, pine trees, so they're, they're needles, um, and been very, very good for, um, you know, really slowing, the, slowing the, the wind down, but not blocking it. They've got fast growth as well, don't they? They do. Um, again, it comes back to, you know, how much water they can get. But, um, yeah, they, they can be, they can grow very, very quickly. Um, they're, they're often grown um, around um, vineyards and things like that because they grow very quickly. They grow tall um, and they're, they're great at slowing that wind down, uh, even as a single line of trees. So how, how thick is your, is your shelter belt? You said that there's three lines, and how how far apart are the three lines? Uh, okay, so they're four meters apart. So that means you've got 12 meters. 12 meters, and then you'd have some space to the fence. I'd, I'd never recommend like putting the trees right on the fence line. So you want to give yourself some space there so you can access the fence, repair it, um, whatever. So typically four meters there as well. So you have four meters, four meters, four meters. So yeah, you're 12 meters. Did you follow a specific design or did you just mix species together? Was there some kind of one line of shrubs, uh, you know, uh, against the wind, then a medium tree, then a taller tree? Did, is there, do you have any more specifics that you could share with us? Yeah, so um, we didn't do it quite like that because um, it's depending on which shelter belt we're talking about. But um, as a general rule, although our prevailing wind direction um, comes out of the north, um, you know, some of these windstorms have actually come from uh, other directions. And so, you know, most of the, the, the shelter belts actually have mixed species in each row. So we'll, we'll have, it, we, we really mixed it up in terms of what we want in to each row. And I know you see classic textbooks, which has, you know, the little shrubs on the outside and then the bigger ones and then the tall trees. That always assumes the wind's coming from exactly the same direction. And um, I think, yeah, it looks great in a book, but, um, you know, a farm's landscape is not a book and you don't always have the wind blowing in the same direction. And, you know, particularly those strong winds um, don't necessarily, necessarily all come from the same direction. Yeah, we've got prominent northern winds in Greece, but the strong winds come from the south. So the northern wind burn, the northern wind come brings in salt that burns our trees leaves um, because it's in an island, but the southern wind comes in with a lot of, of power and breaks branches. So it's got to you've got to be working with both as an example to what you're saying. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think, um, and, and given that um, particularly uh, trees, you're, you're talking about a long-term sort of, once you put it in, it's not easy to change it sort of thing, is that, uh, unless you want to start again, is that I, th I think you've got to recognise that the climate changes, some of the things that historically might have been true may not be true tomorrow. And um, to build as much resilience into your system as you can um, and, you know, not assume that, you know, the wind's always going to, the strong winds are always going to come from the same direction um, and, and those sorts of things. I think, yeah, we've got to recognise that the climate is changing um, and in ways in which we don't understand and therefore the future is going to look different in ways which we probably can't envisage. And therefore, I think building as much resilience into your systems as you can um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm curious about the, the species that you chose for your windbreak. Did you, what were the kind of the, 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 the traits that you were trying to look for? Was it fast growth? Was it? So part of that was around, really around um, a, a few different things is that, uh, again, we're looking for, um, you know, that diversity, that biodiversity. So, um, for example, we've got some bursarias, which is a really small spiky bush, um, has amazing flowers, quite heavily scented, and um, it's just a magnet for butterflies, for example, and is great for, you know, really good protection for small birds, you know, wrens, those sorts of things. So, um, so we had things, we wanted to have things like that, that, you know, provided that sort of habitat. Um, we had some small spiky acacias. Um, again, they didn't last terribly long. They only lasted about um, 10 years. Um, but again, just providing that habitat and still some other stuff uh, got up and growing. So we had some fast growing acacias, you know, not long lived um, just to give, you know, some initial protection. And then we had some um, taller trees. We um, even had some blue glums, um, so the old eucalyptus globulus. Um, we had some of that. We have some of those in them. Um, so that really provides, you know, your height and your structure. Um, so again, it's trying to trying to get it to achieve um, multiple outcomes, and so a lot of biodiversity there, um, and. So a lot of different sorts of habitat for different sorts of bird species in particular, um, but by by doing that. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. So there was not definitely not just an objective of windbreak. There was an objective of you know integrating functional biodiversity there and getting these to 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 complement your ecosystem. Correct. It's and again, you know, why why when you can do multiple things, yeah. why would you just do something that's only going to do one of them? Is that, you know, there's 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 a lot of different things you can achieve with this. Um, why wouldn't you try and maximise that? So I, I expect that you and Darren were also connecting these shelter belts with the forestry areas and and creating a a connected ecosystem matrix, right? I can only expect the best from both of you, to be honest. <laughs> yes. So no, ab absolutely. Is that uh, tr just trying to connect everything up as much as possible? So that, um, you know, again, it provides that biodiverse pathway for, um, you know, 
that provides an environment for quite a lot of your, your bird species in particular, um, they don't have to cross a lot of open ground. So um, yeah, it's, it's connecting it up in that way um, really makes a big difference. Yeah, and I think the other thing, just in terms of uh, diversity, the other thing is to think about diversity, like in terms of the sort of species that you're putting in, because the, you know, to some extent you say, well, okay, the logical thing to do would be to put in um, indigenous species because then your your indigenous birds and other wildlife are going to have something which they can, um, you know, is is part of their natural environment. One of the interesting things that we saw during the, the the millennium drought was that you know quite a number of our um, narrow leaf peppermint gums, so that's eucalyptus radiata, some of them were, were over 200 years old and they died. Is that you know so you've got these indigenous species which will no longer survive in this environment. And so you've got to start thinking about, well, what is the environment going to look like in 20, 30, 50 years time? And will my, whatever I'm planting, survive in that environment? And, you know, and, and so you, you ch your best choice may not be an indigenous plant. Is that, um, and I know a lot of people get quite excited about planting indigenous plants and, and absolutely, um, it, it's appropriate, but again, just in terms of looking for that um, diversity and the resilience of your landscape over time, you, you just need to think about, you know, will some of these species survive? Um, and uh, yeah, I was quite surprised is that uh, we lost quite a number of, you know, species that, or trees that um, had yeah, when I when I cut them up for firewood, um, you know, there was a lot of rings there. So they'd been around, they'd seen a lot of droughts, seen a lot of floods, they'd seen a lot of stuff, but they couldn't survive this one. Typically, they'll last um, 300 plus years. So it wasn't as if um, they, they'd like reached the end of their useful life. It's just that the environment had changed and they could no longer survive in the environment. And another element to that conversation is also the treatment, the soil treatment that they, the, they, they, that the previous owner, for example, had had um, had created. So, for example, by we're seeing this a lot in the Montado. You've got very sensitive environments. It's a Mediterranean climate. So it's brittle. It's sensitive. You have then a lot of overgrazing because you have you know more animals than there were before to have more productive systems. You have hay now, you have feed that you can buy cheap. So people put more animals on their land, soil conditions deteriorate, and then the oak trees, they struggle. Uh, Complement that with the more irregular yep. rainfall, reduced rainfall, etc. the pattern that we see in the Mediterranean climate throughout. Um, and you get old trees uh, that should be living much longer that are starting to, the tips start to dry, you know, they start to be, the illnesses start to affect them. And we see that kind of slow decline. Um, and um, yeah, that's that's something that's important to take note of as well. It's not just the climate. It's also this recent intensification of management and, and the cost on the soil. Yeah, and I, th I think that's, and that happens over a long period of time. So the fact they actually died on our watch um, doesn't necessarily mean it was the conditions 
right then. Sure, it was a dry period, but yeah, absolutely. The the soil had been compacted over a long period of time. Um, yeah, potentially overgrazed, um, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I I, I take your point um, entirely. It's uh, but I think um, you know one of your other interviewees, uh, Rowan Reed. Um, you know, one of the things that he's been talking about in terms of his um, agroforestry plots is that he is now planting trees that will survive under a lower rainfall environment. And um, just because this part of the world is going to be a lot drier. And so, you know, again, you need to think about that in terms of your shelter belts, your, just the sort of things that you do is, you know, am I, am I planting a resilient um, structure here that's um, you know going to last for the longer term, particularly round trees because they last a relatively long time. Although having said that, there's um, you know some of the grasses we've got a riparian zone, and some of the grasses there, um, like um, kangaroo grass, which is um, you know it can live to be a hundred years old. So um, you know it's almost it's almost like a tree in that respect. Is that it's, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. So, um, and, um, you know, it's, so, and there's some of that grassland that, you know, we, we've lost most of it. Um, and, you know, so it, it's really important to maintain that biodiversity and keep some of those species because it's interesting is that that particular species, it's not just, um indigenous to Australia or native to Australia. It also grows in um, Africa. Um, I think it's called red grass over there or um, Afrikaans as rule grass. And, um, you know, it has 20% protein. Like it could be one of those um, plants that provides a huge amount of, um, you know, feed for us as the climate dries out because, you know, kangaroo grass will survive in both wet environments and dry environments. Um, it's very, very good at that. And so it's much more resilient grass than a lot of the ones that, you know, like um, wheat and oats and barley and rye and stuff. So again, you know, it we, we really need to be careful that we don't lose some of these species because we may ultimately depend on them for our survival. Shifting a bit back to, to the multifunctionality of the landscape or of the shelter belts, have you expected to extract a, a product from there? Are you expecting to harvest some kind of wood, timber, wood chips, anything from, from that shelter belt? Definitely. Um, so we planted so, some of the species there. We planted um, because uh, they're really good for nectar. Um, so potential honey production. Um and I would imagine some of the blue gums will take out from time to time. And that, that'll be, um, you know, we'll just take one out and put one back type stuff. Um, so they, they haven't been high pruned for timber, but, you know, they've, they've probably got four or five metres to the first branch. And because, um, again, a lot of, you know, a lot of the shrubs and stuff force them to grow up. And so essentially they self prune for the first um four or five metres. And so, you know, I, I, th I think we'll get some timber out of them as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, we'll, um, and interestingly, yeah, some of the, um, 
casuarinas that we planted in there. So your bull oaks and those sorts of things. You got a, a wonderful large seed, um, and you know you can use those. Um, give them a, a a silver spray, and they make great Christmas tree decorations. So um, you know there, there's lots of things you can do with um, you know some of the plants that uh, we have in our shelter belts. And, um, you know, the opportunities are there. You just got to have the time and resources to go after them. Um, I have one fa final question about windbreaks. And I think it's also one of the, 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 the key things that comes out with it. It's, you know, how does the windbreak system interact with the olive trees? Have you noticed um, a serious impact on olive tree productivity closer to the windbreak? due to either reduced wind speed, microclimates, or also competition between the windbreak and the olive trees? Have you noticed that there is, there is some kind of competitive relationship going on and maybe in closer proximity? I don't know. I'm very curious about your observations with, between the olive trees and, and the shelter belts. Yeah, slowing the wind speed down has helped. Um, and typically that slows the wind speed down for quite a number of rows. The rows closest um, to the shelter belt, we only have a couple of places where the rows are almost parallel to the shelter belt um, and, and planted quite closely um, in actual fact. And uh, definitely there is a production impact. Um, and not, not initially, but as the olive trees grew up more. Now, in one case, I have like two specific cases that come to mind. Um, in one case, it's because the uh, shelter belt shades the olive trees and olive trees don't like to be shaded. Um, that definitely affects production. So um, because the shelter belt has grown a lot higher than the olive trees and uh, as a result, the trees are in shade a lot more of the time. Um, that definitely has an impact on production. Uh, no question about it. In the other case, I, th I think it might be a moisture issue, although the trees are big and healthy, so that suggests not. Um, and I haven't actually really, yeah, the, the trees are probably as big as any of them, um, which suggests that it's not a water competition issue. So it may be a pollination issue, is that the shelter belt, um, because they're, they're a wind-pollinated tree, and the, by definition, the shelter belt may in fact be, you know, slowing the wind speed down enough that there's not enough pollen um, in that particular area to pollinate the trees. I'm not 100% sure. I don't think it's a war, even though it's quite dry underneath, the trees are really well grown. So I, I, don't, th I don't believe it's a water stress issue. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting where they are. are quite close together like at one point um yeah the shelter belt probably gets within five meters of the olive trees um and so yeah I, i'm hypothesizing that maybe the shelter belt just slows the wind speed down too much that they're not getting that pollination but that's that's an effect that you're seeing just on the on the closest row or is that some an effect you're seeing throughout a few rows yeah yeah, yeah absolutely interestingly the next row is one of my best rows. So it's it's like it's ones that are hard up against the actual shelter belt. Um, 
I actually do see an effect. Um, and as I said, it only runs parallel to it for a short period of time. Um, so it's probably 20 trees maybe. Um, and, and those 20 trees definitely um, are affected from a production point of view. It's amazing to be able to have these observations because also, you know, you're managing a, it's still relatively big for an olive, you know, crop cultivation, but you're intimately interacting with most of those trees. And, and, and that is quite some incredible feedback. I wasn't expecting such a detailed answer. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Uh, well, I, th I think, yeah, really as a um, land manager, that's our, our, our biggest single skill. It's about observation. Um, and so it, it's a matter of seeing things. And, and I guess with that being intensely curious is that why, why, why is that happening? Why, why is it like that? Um, so, yeah. I think it, the, for the, in terms of the windbreak and the observations, What's really hard to understand is the general impact of the of the forestry, agroforestry, shelter belts, etc., on the productivity of your landscape, because it's it can be small details where you know it's changes through time that we can't observe. We don't have a control, which is like you know we're, we're interacting with. And so it's it's but I, we can only hypothesize. And what I'm feeling from also the conversation that we just had, it's that you know you're really feeling you know, you're seeing that there is an, an ecosystem is created and with the different tree plantings that you've put around the place, you've managed to, to you are improving your production. I think that's absolutely right. I think there's, uh, it's synergistic in terms of the way in which each of the parts uh, work with each other. And, um, you know, I, I th think that overall you end up with a better outcome as, as a result. And, um it's difficult to quantify um, in terms of, you know, what those sorts of things might be. But, you know, one of those windstorms that came through is that um, there was a property not far from here. They had, um, it was actually a forestry plot, south facing slope, and um, they lost every single tree. Like every single tree got flattened. And, um, you know, we lost one olive tree. So, you know, it's almost like, yeah, it's um, pretty much the same wind. It was certainly howling. Um, and, um, yeah, one, we, we lost one tree. So it's, yeah, it, I, I think the various parts pull together to, you know, create an environment that um, is, is much more nurturing and um, enables... Uh, all the different parts to prosper. I think that's a beautiful way to finish the interview. Yeah, very. I'm very grateful for, for your time. It's really incredible. Thank you. No, not at all. I'm um, really happy to uh, share my passion. So, um, no, the, the joy was all mine. Thank you so much for listening to this interview. Check out all the links below. You can find out lots more about our web on our new website. And we've got some very exciting news coming up in the coming weeks. So stay tuned. Bye-bye for now.